Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Let's pray. We'll get started. We're in chapter 2. We'll try and cover two of the churches this evening. Lord, I want to be mindful of you and not let the busyness of life blind me from your presence or deafen me from your voice. Lord, numb me from your touch. I don't want to go through life without an awareness of you. And so I pray, Lord, that as we are here taking time to pause and to open up the scriptures and read and and learn, it would be an opportunity for you to, again, uh, revitalize our relationship to inspire us to speak into our lives in a way that is personal, in a way that is powerful, in a way that will help us, God, to continue living with an awareness of you and a commitment to you. I thank you for everyone here. I do pray for those who are not able to make it those who let me know they couldn't be here because of uh, other commitments of family needs, Lord, pray your blessing be upon them. And Lord, we again are grateful for all that you are doing in our lives, how you've provided for us, Lord. And Lord, may we be as generous to others as you have been to us. And we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Revelation chapter 2, we are going to look at the Church of Smyrna and Pergamum. At least we'll try to get through them both. I think we could. I think we will. So let's start at verse 8. Remember, um, just in review, that this letter, these letters to these individual churches were actual individual churches there in the area of Turkey, what is now Turkey, Um the writer John is dealing specifically with these churches, and so a lot of the things have to do with uh, things that are taking place in that region, in those uh, church communities. But of course, it is truth that can apply throughout history and things that we can apply to our lives. Uh, what I, I want to refrain from doing is trying to spiritualize everything to the point where it has no application to what was intended by the writer at this time. Um, 
he is very much trying to help the churches at this time who are going through a lot of persecution, who are struggling with identity, who have lost zeal because of all these things that are taking place since the church began uh, to help them and, of course, to help us continue in faithfulness to the Lord. And so it is very direct in what he is trying to do, and we don't want to lose sight of that. So let's start in verse 8 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Again, we start with a picture of Jesus, the first and the last, as well as the one who died and came to life again. There is no criticism that is taking place to this church. There's no rebuke. And it's worth noting that here is a church who is impoverished, who is inflicted, and there is no rebuke. And I can't help but wonder if those things are connected to each other in some way. That a church that is going through persecution is also a church that has been refined through that persecution, that has been uh, maybe put aside the things that aren't so trivial or things that really don't matter, that they are so having to hold on to what is important that those meaningless things really aren't showing up in their lives. I mean, think about it when we go through uh, difficult times, how we don't worry about menial stuff. I don't worry about if my Amazon order is coming in on time, if something really significant is happening. Those things aren't even in my mind. And I think a lot of times the problems that we go through have to do a lot with how we give ourselves over to so many things that are not important. And so here's a church that is suffering, that is impoverished, and there is no rebuke. There is nothing to kind of hold them or to criticize them over. And as the, John is writing here, he says he knows their affliction, his poverty, but they are rich. He knows the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, the attack that they are going through is not only from Rome, but is also from the Jews who did not believe that Christ was Messiah. The struggle that the Christians, early Christians, were facing is that they believed that Jesus 
and their faith was not a new religion. It was actually a, a fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And, and so they saw Christ, Messiah, as the promised one. But the Jews who rejected Christ as the promised one were then persecuting them. And remember that the Jews at that time had the ability because Rome recognized them as a basically a belief system, a religion, that Rome did not require the Jews to bow the knee to Caesar, as it were. They still had to pay taxes, of course, but they didn't have to go through a lot of the ceremonial things that other people did because they recognized them as a state, in a sense, of themselves. But that was not so of the Christians. See, the Christians were now no longer under this umbrella of the Jewish religion because they were saying they weren't a part of this. And so now Rome could hold them accountable to bend the knee and to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. And so we find them in this struggle there. While some Jews rejected actively Jesus, they would actually then start to to not only blaspheme who Christ was, they'd bring curses down on his followers by maybe bringing accusations about them to Roman officials, which could then result in further persecution would result in their impoverished state, people not wanting to hire these people, not wanting to do business with these people who were alienated from Rome. And so this connection of the synagogue of Satan is really um, trying to address what's happening in this city with these particular Christians at the time. Paul talked about who were the true Jews, And he talked about this in Romans chapter 2. He said that they were the Jew, the one who was of the heart. That's the true Israel, the one of the heart, not just one who was born in a genealogy. It's not something that is basically something you have in your DNA because you are of this lineage, that it was actually a person who was having faith in the God of Abraham, and that shows up in Christ. And so there is this struggle. These people saying, we are the followers of the Messiah, the Jews saying, he isn't the Messiah, you are not a Jew, you do not belong to us. And the word Satan literally means the accuser. The synagogue in the town has been accusing the Christians of all kinds of wickedness, in particular in a city where Roman imperial presence and influence was everywhere. And so the Jews would have been exempt from taking part in the festivals of this cult, and they may well have been accusing the authorities that the Christians were claiming to be exempt as well, and they're not. And so now you find these Christians in this difficult place. They're being persecuted from Rome. They're being persecuted by the people who many of them were Jewish still, Uh, as far as their ethnicity, but they're getting persecuted from them as well. And so that causes a lot of consequences resulting in their poverty. And otherwise, that was a very affluent city, a city that had 
uh, a lot going for it. Here were people who were followers of Christ who were on the bad side of things, and so they couldn't take part in that affluence because of these kinds of things. And so the struggle is real. The struggle is real for them. But he says they're rich. I know your poverty, but you're rich. And what do you say to someone who is going through difficulty? What words do you give someone when they're going through a really hard time? You know, you don't want to give them just these little trite sayings like, hey, it's all going to be okay. I don't feel okay. It doesn't seem like everything's going to be okay. And we can even do that with scripture sometimes, right? Here's a scripture to make it all better. But what you want to try and do is give hope. You want to try and help someone see that, hey, there is more than what's happening here. This this thing you're going through is not the last word. And so this poverty that you're experiencing, there is more that you have not uncovered yet. And so John is trying to help them see that there is more that is taking place, trying to give them hope. He says that 10 days... And there's been all kinds of speculation. I read all kinds of things about what 10 days are, but no one knows. It's most likely just something figurative, right? It's this way of kind of saying that, you know, there's a period of time. Because sometimes a day means a year, or it can be even just more general, a period of time. And so we don't know what it means, this, you know, you'll be imprisoned and some you will die and it's going to happen for 10 days, but then, you know, this is going to happen. Basically he's saying there's going to be a time where some of you are going to be in prison. You're going to go through persecution. And then he even says, and some of you are going to uh, even be to the point of death. Gosh. Hey, I know it's rough. You're going to go through a period of time where it's going to be hard. Some of you actually to the point of death. Harsh things to say. Why doesn't it strike them maybe in a harsh way as it would us? Because they're in the middle of it and they see the reality of it. You know, my daughter came home the other day and actually she called first because an event that happened at the hospital that was traumatic. And she just called us because it was very... uh, emotional. And she told us about the circumstance and this person that had an aneurysm in their heart. And the tragedy, besides that being just a young man who had this, is the young man's wife was there at the hospital working. And so he called her saying, I'm not feeling well. And she said, well, come on in. I'm working. He comes in. And within 30 minutes of him coming in, checking in, he's dead. And because she knows medically what's going on and she knows he has an aneurysm in the heart, she knows that there's nothing they can do. And, you know, we unaware of those things are saying, well, you know, he's going to go in for surgery and maybe they can do that. And, And you see... The reality is, no, surgery will not fix what's going to happen to him. He's going to die unless there's a miracle, right? And so the reality there is that this is going to happen. 
And she is aware of it because she knows what's happening. She knows the terminology. When she says an aneurysm in the heart and she mentioned where it was at, she knows that once that bursts, it's over. There is nothing they can do. No matter what kind of surgery is going to happen, they can't stop it. And even when someone does die, she is required to tell them point blank they're dead. She can't say they've passed away, they're gone now. She's not allowed to say anything that might be construed as other than they are dead. Because the reality has to be embraced, right? There has to be an owning of what has happened, and they can't be liable for them misconstruing that. So John is here is telling him, some of you are going to go through t- difficult times. You're going to be in prison. Some of you will suffer to the point of death. He's telling them the truth because it's truth that they need to hear. And here's the thing. He believes that they are able to hear it and overcome it. He believes that this bad news is not enough to quench what they're going through. He says, I will give you life as your victor's crown. And this is again, the angel speaking for Jesus to the churches. And and this is Jesus really speaking to the churches and saying, I will give you life as your victor's crown. And I love the way that is worded, that the true renewed life of God's new age, those who profess him will be marked out as royalty, as marked out by this crown. They will not be forgotten. God will recognize them, and he's crowning him with the life that comes only from God. And so he is acknowledging these things. And this is something that they were not unfamiliar with. Remember Philippians 2.8, being found, speaking of Jesus in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. They are actually following his steps. Martyrdom is the idea of witness. A martyr is a witness. They are witnessing or proclaiming who Jesus is by their own lives, even in death. And so it's not just, well, you know, you do these things or you say these things and you become a witness for Christ. Your life is a witness. And even in your death, you are able to be a witness. You are able to give account of who Jesus is. And so some powerful words that he's saying here. Now, Again, the letter is very specific to the church that was there in Smyrna. The city of Smyrna was once destroyed, and then it was rebuilt. And so the idea of the one who was dead and has come back to life, and that would not be able to be hurt by the second death. Again, all this terminology is very reminiscent of that city and the things that that city represented. And now these people are being identified. Just as this church or this city has been destroyed and rebuilt, I died, I came back to life. 
that's for you too. That's something that's promised to you too. And the final promise points in that same direction. Anyone who is quite naturally afraid that they might face death for their beliefs is introduced to this idea that John is going to bring out again towards the end of the books, at the end of the book. There are, and it seems, two forms of death, right? The first is the bodily death to which we all will come. Jesus has already passed that way, and those who belong to him can know that he will first welcome them on the other side and then, at the end, raise them to new life in his final new world. But the second death is the ultimate fate of those who steadfastly and deliberately refuse to follow the way of Christ, to worship the one God who is revealed in him. The second death will, it seems, do for the entire personality what the first death will do for the physical body. And that's a terrifying thought. I mean, it's haunting that there is another death besides a physical one that we have to be aware of. And again, we see this return in chapter 20. But his point here is don't be afraid to face the first death. Some of you will have to do that. To conquer, to face that martyrdom in faithful patience will mean that you will have nothing to fear from the second death. You are going to go through this just like Christ went through it. Be content to go with Jesus through the first death. He was dead. He came back to life. So will you. And this is something they held on to. Because he lives, we will live also. And so they had faith in Christ and in this to take place. Solemn words. Again, very heavy period of time for the followers of Jesus. A lot of serious struggle taking place. And again, this is why John is writing this book. He's writing it for these people and the people who are going through these kinds of things and are having to make these kinds of choices and other choices. We come to Pergamum, verse 12. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, whom taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears to hear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, written on it, known only to the one who receives it. 
Have you ever been traveling on the 210 freeway and you go up past Pasadena and then up into Glendale and as you start kind of getting onto the 134 freeway, you go up a high on a hill before you hit the two. I've been driving this way a lot, so I, it's very fresh in my mind. There's a point where you go up that hill and you can actually see L.A. You see all the, the buildings. You see all the skyscrapers that are there. And, and it's great because you can't see it when you're in Pasadena. You're just too low. But when you get to a certain place, all of a sudden the, the city is seen. And it's kind of a cool thing to see the silhouette of the buildings there against the sky. And the landscape of Pergamum was similar to that where... It was very high up. It was elevated in this place. There was a high acropolis in the middle of the city, and it had these giant temples that were there that everyone could see not only in the city but in the countryside far away. So that if you were at a distance, you could look and see Pergamum, Pergamum and you could see the temples that were there, and it, you can see it from the distance. They dominated the view, not only in the city, again, in the countryside surrounding it. And... While people might see this and think, oh, how beautiful. Look at those temples. Look how great that is. The early followers of Christ in that community, it represented a threat. Not just something that was beautiful. It, it was a very real threat that they were not doing very well. But here are these things, these temples, these signs of the city we're living in and the signs of the opposition to our beliefs. When he says where Satan has his throne, Satan, again, the accuser or the devil, is referred to as the ancient serpent we see in chapter 20. And, and that's a clue. A clue of this is the description that can be found of Pergamum's local religions. There was a shrine of the healing god of Asolopius, I think, whose symbol was a serpent. In addition, Pergamum was another city with a major center of Rome. They're encamped in it. Um, where Rome would have its emperors stay there. We'll see that John believes that the devil is using Rome to attack the church. We're going to see that throughout this book. And even though he doesn't call Rome the devil we see that it's part of the devil's hand in playing at this. Pergamum was the seat of the Roman governor for the whole region. Okay, so here is a city that's elevated where the Roman governor sits in that region. How do you, as a follower of Christ, live in a city that is so hostile towards your beliefs? What can you do? What should you do? living in this city under these conditions. Do you take part in the normal civil life, right, the civic life? Do you go to town hall meetings when you're a Christian and they are so much against your life, which included their festivals for their gods and a lot of the worship of the Roman emperor? Do you partake in those kinds of things? Can you be somewhat involved but not compromise your faith? How do you exist in, in this situation? And you see, followers of Christ have had to deal with these things throughout all of history, no matter where they're at, right? We still have to deal with that, 
not to the same extent they did, but we do to some point today. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 and in Romans 14. He gave careful nuance advice not to compromise with pagan temples, but gave flexibility on food sacrificed to idols, the meat or the drink in general. It's like, oh, this food has been sacrificed by these idols. It's not a big deal. But don't partake of their worship. Right? And so there are these kinds of nuances. You know, don't engage in those practices, but it's okay to eat these foods. Some people would equate Halloween in the same way. Oh, you know, you're, it's this old, you know, ritual. For that sake, so is Christmas, you know, and Easter. But we won't point out those. We'll just talk about Halloween, right? And so the idea is, well, oh, you're partaking of these things. Well, you can go door to door and eat candy and it not be a worshipful event, right? It's something where you can nuance those things and, and see that it's not the same. Some there have figured, well, we can fully blend in. Okay, we have this kind of freedom to be followers of Jesus where we can fully blend into the culture and not stand out at all. After all, there's this one guy who's named Antipas, and he died because he stood out. He was martyred. He's commended here for standing out. He's commended as being someone who really was faithful, right? And so we don't want to be like him and get killed. So a lot of people may have gone the other way, not to stand out at all and not to be identified with Christ at all. After all, what will happen if they notice us? Well, the same thing that happened to him. And so the comparison to King Balak and Israel gives us some insight into what's going on. Remember, King Balak of Moab hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. That's what he says in verse 14. But Balaam couldn't curse them, right? They were God's people, but still he wanted the reward from King Balak. And so he found another way. He found a subtle way to kind of go through those things. The direct attack would fail, but a more subtle temptation might work. The temptation was sexual, just like in all the spy movies where you have, you know, the double spy and she's, you know, really working for them. She's seducing him or vice versa to get the information. I don't know. I guess that's how it happens in spies. I would imagine it's in the movies, so... The reason that sexual immorality is so often connected with idolatry is because of this behavior. It, it points to the different gods. It, it's pointing them to a direction of taking on worship, the god of indulgence, god of pleasure, seducing them. And the Nicolaitans may have been a small group who were teaching something along these lines to participate in pagan forms of worship. It's okay, we know you believe in Jesus, but you can partake of these forms of worship, which would then often include sexual rights. And so that you can blend in. They won't, they won't persecute you, they won't kill you, you can still follow Jesus and be involved with these things. 
The problem is that the church in Pergamum was not being an example in any way. They were not being the light of the world that Christ had told them to be. And that the early church that we see in Acts was, that was powerful and proclaiming this witness, that say, we must obey God rather than men, even though they would threaten us. We're not seeing that take place here in this church, in this city. Boldness and faith is a powerful testimony. Even if someone has the wrong faith, if they're bold, it stands out. You notice those things, right? Wow, that person is so committed to their belief. Look what they do. They refuse to eat meat. They refuse to you know, eat pork. They refuse to worship on these days. Wow, they're so committed. And there's something that makes you want to commend their commitment to those things, their boldness in those things. But Jesus' response to the church at Pergamum is really clear. The Roman governor and those who hold power, these temples and these areas of worship might hold a sword, but Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. See that in verse 12 and verse 16. And this is reference even from chapter 1, verse 16. His word will cut through half-hearted spirituality. His word is going to pierce. And again, the promise, it's a little clouded, it's a little obscure here for Pergamum, but there is a promise. And I think it's important to recognize that we are a people of promise. We, we do not live our life without hope. We do not live our lives without promise. The things that you go through, whatever you go through, God has a promise. The promise isn't that it's going to be all okay and it's going to work out. The promise is that he is going to be in the midst of it and he will be on the other side of it. And so here he gives a promise, and he talks of this hidden manna, right? Whoever has ears to hear, let him say what the, hear what the Spirit has to say. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. What is that? Well, God fed his people with manna, right? Bread that came from heaven. He supplied them in their time of need. When they were starving, God took care of them. He he provided what they needed to get them through that journey in that wilderness. He's going to do the same for you. I will provide what you need right here in your situation. In your time of persecution, you're afraid of what's going to happen. I will provide what you need so that you can get through it and still bear witness of me. In that place where you live, it might seem to be starving. It might seem that they're starving you to death because of their persecution. But I will give you the secret manna. There are also parallels to the sacrament of Jesus, right? body and blood broken for us and given to that. He will give some of them hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. I love this. We can only guess at what it means, right? 
but it, it is so intriguing. Some believe that because most of the buildings there in Pergamum were built from a black stone, that they would actually use right to, white stones to highlight those kinds of things. But I think about how Jesus gave Peter a new name. I think how Paul was once Saul. I think about how Jacob was once, or Israel was once Jacob, how Abraham was once Abram. I I think about how God has this way throughout Scripture of giving a name that now identifies a person with their new purpose. That you've lived like this, but here's a name for how you're going to live. And I wonder if this promise is to them about how they're going to live. Jesus is promising to each faithful disciple, to each one who conquers, this intimate relationship with him. One that will be on a a name basis that only they know who are involved in this relationship. The challenge to avoid these false Relationships, this false intimacy, this false sense of worship, sense of safety by giving in to these other ways of worship is offered a genuine intimacy with spiritual union to Christ himself. And to have a promise that God is going to take where we are and is going to give us a name for where we will be. Something about that is intriguing to me. Something about that is a little bit haunting in a good way. Because I feel that there is a life I'm supposed to be living. And I'm trying to find out what that life is. And I'm, I am trying to hear his voice and know the direction and know the things I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to live. I am aware that there is more, but I'm a little bit deaf to hear his voice in it and to know that he is going to maybe give me that name that's going to make it clear that this is your intention. This is your purpose. You are not Jacob. You are governed by God. You are not just a little stone that you are a rock, that you are not a striver against, but you are a servant. You are, this is what I have for you. And I almost hear it. And I almost think we could hear God's name for us if we would listen closely enough. We would hear God's name for us if we would seek him diligently. That if we wouldn't give up, that if we would not yield ourselves to the temptations that start to suffocate our spirit's life, that start to dull our hearing and blind us, if we would not yield ourselves to those things, perhaps we could hear the name he has for us 
and see the life he wants for us and be able to move clearly in that direction. And that's a beautiful picture of hope. I think he gives to that church and to these people who are struggling, but who can blame them? The struggle is real. Some of us are struggling. And God's not there going, ah, oh, that's so stupid. What are you struggling? He's saying, I've got more for you. I've got something for you. It's not a matter of just stop doing that. It's start living for this. Because that's where our strength lies in him. Any questions or thoughts stand out to you on these two churches? Well, let's pray. Father, I do again recognize, Lord, that whenever there is struggle, you are there. Lord, your promise isn't to deliver us from the problem. Your promise is that you are in the midst of it. You are in the midst of the persecution. You are in the midst of the pain. Lord, you are in the other side to see us through. And so, Lord, may we see you present where we are at. May we hear these words of a commendation as well as rebuke. May we take to heart what is applicable. And may we see these promises that are given to both of these churches, Lord. The escape of the second death, the hidden manna, the stone with a name that only you and we know. May we take those promises, Lord, and understand those are ours if we too would live a life committed and would not yield to any other emperor's God. And so help us, Lord, to see clearly these things and may they motivate our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.